Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. More than ever these days, writers' festivals and literary interviews encourage readers to interest themselves in the lives and thought processes of the novelists and poets whose work they read. But at what point does gossip become literary history? C.K. Stead doesn't have a definitive answer, but he very much likes the question, and he puts his thoughts in the University of Auckland free public lecture, History or Gossip. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Nicola. Um, and thank you, everybody, for being here. At the moment, I've got two beams of light straight at me. Straight at me. I thought they were going to be removed, but I'm sure they'll be turned off soon. <clears throat> I'm sure they will. I'm less sure. Um, right, well, you know what the subject is, so I'll go straight into it. On page 386 of his biography of Frank Sargeson, Michael King reports that in 1972, Frank had another spirited exchange of letters with Carl Stead, when Stead reported that Charles Brash had visited him in Montaigne. Um, I had more or less accused Brash of being an old fake and asked why everyone was so pious about him. In terms of what it was acceptable to say about Brash at the time, when he was well known as almost the only wealthy benefactor the arts in New Zealand had, this was outrageous and no doubt unfair and unjust. Uh, Brash was a good man who did his best for literature and the visual arts, but he was irritatingly precious and snobbish. Not the snobbishness of wealth and social status, but of good taste. He suffered from an overload of discriminations and dismissals and these had no doubt provoked my spirited, to use Michael King's word, outburst uh, in the letter to Frank. Frank wrote back to me, look, you simply can't write things like that. He reminded me that his correspondence was being bought by the Turnbull Library. In other words, his, his papers were becoming literary history. And if he hadn't rescued me by sending my letter back to me, I would have gone on record as having said something bad about Brash. King records that my reply was, I wrote to you, Frank, not to the Turnbull Library or to the future. <laughs> but this was a reminder that when you put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, if you're an aspirant to literature, you may be committing literary history. Someone in the future may be waiting to pounce on your words and make something of them, not necessarily something you would want. I didn't mind going on record as someone who'd said, uh, who'd been less than uh, totally respectful about Brash, but I was aware that a lot I'd written in letters to Frank had been naive and unguarded, and I didn't welcome the idea that whatever I'd written uh, on the spur of the moment was going to be freely available to researchers in the future. I hasten to say that I was truly fond of Frank. He was a mentor who became a friend. He was a, lively, he was a living legend. He'd done for New Zealand literature 
what, um, for New Zealand fiction, what Henry Lawson had done for Australian and what Mark Twain had done for American. He'd written stories in a Kiwi vernacular. He'd wrested our fiction away from the language of middle-class Britain and given it the talk of uh, talk and thoughts of jokers and sheilas, of Bills and Kens and Freds, who sometimes, but not always, had a frowning missus. Currently, he was moving on, changing the language of his stories from the vernacular to what he called his Mandarin style. And he was making courageous attempts, as Kerno was too, to write plays and bring a local theatre into existence. Whatever Frank Sargison did as a writer was part of the unfolding story of what we were learning, partly because of him, to call New Zealand literature. During those middle years of the 20th century, our writers were attempting to create a literature not dependent on Britain for sanction or hungry for British approval. There was an assertive independence in the air. I was going to say a sturdy independence, but assertive seems more accurate because we were still colonials trying not to be, but uncertain of success. Sargison, Kernow, Fairburn, Robin Hyde, Dennis Glover, they were giving our writer our writing, in Shakespeare's lovely phrase, a local habitation and a name. The National Library had begun to buy up their correspondence and manuscripts, as well as the surviving literary papers of Catherine Mansfield, creating the beginnings of a literary historical archive. Whatever these writers put on paper was going into the record. Much of it was gossip, but gossip might be significant and could become part of literary history. The other significant fact about Sargison was his homosexuality. He'd had a criminal conviction as a young man for a homosexual offence, which had cost him his job and his profession and would have earned him a prison sentence if he hadn't perhaps dishonestly put all the blame on the older man he was involved with. This had left him guilt-ridden, I suspect, and certainly anxious, feeling unsafe because his secret homosexual life was his emotional centre. It couldn't not figure in his writing, but it had to figure obliquely so that sophisticated and liberal-minded readers could perceive it there and the rest could read the stories straight, so to speak, missing their secret centre. That fact was probably part of his reason for wanting to eliminate from the record my angry and derisive remarks about Charles Brash. Frank valued Brash as a benefactor, but he also recognised him as a closet homosexual, one of the brotherhood Frank signalled to by, for example, always writing on green paper. Apparently that was a signal. He kept up international literary contacts with homosexual writers like William Plumer, John Lehman and Ian e. Forster. He was a devoted reader of W.H. Auden, another gay writer, and knew a great deal about him derived, obviously, from private sources because they weren't in published sources at the time. <clears throat> Even late in his life, when homosexual acts ceased to be crimes, Frank was still not inclined to come out publicly and seemed unsympathetic to the idea of gay pride. He was like a member of a secret society who valued the secrecy, the signals and covert recognitions, and even possibly the element of danger and risk, 
all of which may be a way of saying he was told by then to change. But he gave gay identity. Gay, by the way, was a word he refused to use. He, 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 he preferred to stick to the old meaning of gay. Uh, but he gave gay identity importance in New Zealand, in the New Zealand literary scene. He tried to help Bill Pearson get over his unhappiness about being gay. And it must have given younger writers like Peter Wells and Witty Emira uh, confidence to know that he was there and gay and important. When Frank died and was I was interviewed about him, I referred to him as homosexual. Uh, and his sister wrote protesting and asked what the word meant. I thought her question was probably disingenuous, but I answered it honestly. I didn't, however, tell her what Frank had told me, that he'd always been in love with her husband. <laughs> <coughs> but uh, Frank's gay identity was perhaps of less general significance than his identity as a New Zealand writer who was making a life of it, a living from it, simply by staying put and writing about what was going on around him. Frank became perhaps an inadvertent, but certainly not an unwilling symbol an icon, an inspiration to us all. And he was such a wonderful host, such an interesting man. And his little fibro bat, such a centre of books, literary conversation, good food, gardening and gossip. To me, when I went overseas and had some academic success and job offers, which meant I could stay and be an academic there, where everything seemed more significant than it could ever be in New Zealand, Frank was one of the reasons I came scuttling back. He and Alan Kernow, my two, the two mentors of my younger days, uh, were the exemplars that, that um, uh, brought me back. This was a sort of literary romanticism, I have to um, admit, uh, because being a writer in New Zealand was not, um, as they could have well have told me and probably did tell me, uh, was not going to be an ideal situation, but... Um, but I have never regretted it. I got to know Kerno before I met Sargeson. In fact, uh, when I made the launch speech for his last book of poems, The Bells of St Babels, in March 2001, just six months before his death, I was able to say it was half a century, almost to the day, since I'd first set eyes on him in March 1951. Myself, an 18-year-old enrolling first-year student, he, a 39-year-old newly appointed lecturer from Christchurch. By my second year, I was a member of his stage two tutorial, a group of 10 or 12. And for one of our meetings, Alan had chosen for discussion Shelley's poem, Epicycidian. It was about an escape Shelley dreamed of making from the horror of conventional marriage. He was already on his second, uh, in which a partner for life is chosen and each with uh, I'm quoting a line from the poem now, one chained friend, perhaps a jealous foe, the weariest and the longest journey go. This was clearly to Alan's taste at that time when he was probably on the brink of his affair with Jenny Toll, who would be his second wife. But of course, I was not to know that. The phrase, the longest journey, the dreariest and the longest journey go, uh, was one Ian Forster had used as title for his second novel, no doubt with the same idea of conventional marriage as a ghastly bondage. 
Shelley's romanticism goes into full-blown overdrive in this poem uh, at the thought of his escape with the beautiful Italian woman, um, Emilia Viviani. Emily, a ship is floating in the harbor now. A wind is hovering o'er the mountain's brow. There is a path on the sea's azure floor. No keel has ever plowed that path before. The halcyons brood around the foamless isles. The treacherous ocean has forsworn its wiles. The merry mariners are bold and free. Say, my heart's sister, wilt thou sail with me? And he goes on to describe the lovely uh, isle under Ionian skies where they will escape, make their escape. Well, tutorials were supposed to be a conversation, not a lecture, but Alan's notion of conversation was exactly like James K. Baxter's. He talked and you listened. So his tutorials were monologues which made them easy if you were shy and preferred not to speak in class. But it happened on this occasion that the young Stead had something to say. I was a convert to Dunn and the Metaphysical Poets, and I felt Shelley was a bit slack and sloppy. So I became impatient as Alan ran on at such length and quite uncritically about the beauty of this poem. Also, I'd read a British Council booklet on Shelley by Stephen Spender, in which Spender suggests the poem doesn't so much end as suffer a collapse after the, after the pursuit of the unobtainable. He's referring to the lines that come later towards the end of the poem, Ah, woe is me, the winged words on which my soul would pierce into the height of love's rare universe are chains of lead around its flight of fire. I pant, I sink, I tremble, I expire. The only chink in the armour of Kerno's monologue was his pipe, which he had to stop now and then to stoke and relight. And into one of these moments I stuck my oar. I suppose I said, oh, excuse me, Mr. Kerno, or something like that. And then I said, Stephen Spender says this poem collapses. <laughs> Alan blinked his lizard blink at me and said, what? So I, I repeated that Spender had said the poem collapses and added by way of illustration, I pant, I sink, I tremble, I expire. Alan looked impatient. Of course, he knew this was supposed to be a tutorial and he should welcome any contribution from a student. But irritation won the day. Oh, why, he said, doesn't Granny Spender get on with her own knitting? Well, some might have felt that was a put-down, but I thought it was marvellous. Spontaneous Kerno at his clever best. Stephen Spender was famous as part of the Auden group, the poets um, that uh, Roy Campbell called the McSpondies. But he was indeed a bit of an old granny. So was this a moment, uh, this moment, and my relating it here, was it gossip or literary history? There are so many literary elements heterosexual Shelley, gay E.M. Forster using that line as a title for a poem, ambiguous Stephen Spender who was gay sometimes and hetero at others, um, Alan Kerner on the brink of an affair that would produce the great poems of 1955, Spectacular Blossom and A Small Room with Large Windows, and finally Stead who would become Kerner's first real literary critic and a writer in his own right. It looks like 
let hist me, but only time would tell. Alan's affair with Jenny Toll began in 1954, but for some years he went on living at home with his first wife, Betty. In fact, he didn't make his escape until 1961 when he went off on a sabbatical leave and didn't return to the family. It must have been sometime during that year or the year before 1960 that Kay and I drove Alan and Betty home from a party at the Lowry's. Alan invited us, um, invited us in for one for the road, as you did in those boozy days. <coughs> and um, uh, after half an hour's conversation, which was largely Kernolog, um, he said it was time to shake the bantams out of the macrocarpa tree. He and I would do that while Betty at last was given a chance to say something and she could talk to Kay. So out we went into the night, the poet and his willing acolyte, and began to swing on the branches in which the bantams were roosting, shaking them down, squawking and complaining around our heads and onto the lawn. A decade later, when I was writing a series of open sonnets in the style of James K. Baxter, I remembered this event and it became the principal subject of one of them. But the sonnet came not only from that memory but from a set of circumstances which I'll now explain before I read the poem. By this time, early 1970s, I knew the North Shore writers, Keith Sinclair, Kendrick Smitherman and Morris Duggan very well, despite the fact that they were exactly 10 years my senior. And in the manner of that pre-texting, pre-email time, which in retrospect seemed so quaint, we wrote and posted letters, quick notes, constantly. One such came to me from Morris Duggan, and he signed it Morris, and then with a triple bracket, G with a cross, Shadbolt with a, a cross, and Duggan with a tick. So it was not Morris G or Morris Shadbolt, it was Morris Duggan. So when I replied, I signed mine KS, because um, the Carl is a K, KS with a triple bracket, Sinclair with a cross, Smitherman with a cross, and Stead with a tick. I wasn't Keith Sinclair, Ken Smitherman, I was Carl Stead. Well, all this was on my mind when I wrote the sonnet recounting the adventures of the Bantams 10 years before. The sonnet began, I'm putting you right in the picture, so you, you, you won't be in it. It's a very literary sonnet, so. It shame, shamefully has to be explained. Um, uh, it began with a parody of the famous lines from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. And it ended with a parody of lines of Shakespeare's Henry IV, part one, quoted on Catherine Mansfield's grave, but I tell you, my lord fool, out of this nettle danger, we pluck this flower safety. So now you're in position, you see, to understand the poem. And here it is. To Morris and to Morris and to Morris, <laughs> Duggan, Shadbolt, gee, how they load us down with fictions. And all our yesterdays maybe have lighted fools the way to Dostoevsky. How many years ago was it that Kurnow's bantams roosted in his macrocarpas 
and he and I one midnight crept under the moon and swung on the branches, bringing those feathered half-wits down around our heads with a flapping and a squawking that echoed over Big Shoal Bay. Do good poets make bad professors? Do many Morrises make light work as one Sargison made a summer? How many KSs could the North Shore harbour before the fall? I tell you, my lord fool, out of these nettled prophets, we still pluck our safety pins. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Well, to go back now to the early 60s, just a few months after the bantam-shaking occasion, Kay and I, again in our little Ford Popular, drove Alan and Betty and Alan's meagre luggage to the wharf to see him off on his sabbatical. None of us, apart from Alan himself, knowing that he had no intention of returning to Betty and the children. But Kay and I noticed, and had to suppose Betty did too, that although Alan returned again and again to the rail to wave to us, wave goodbye to us down on the wharf, he kept disappearing, presumably to wave to someone else in another part of the crowd. This could only have been Jenny, the mistress, as Betty had called her when she told me about Alan's infidelity. As the ship began to move away with vibrant bass hootings and the streamers stretched and broke and the crowd sang the plangent now as the hour, I suppose uh, Betty was fairly sure Alan was going to come back to her. After all, this affair with whoever she was had gone on so long. The only anxiety she expressed to us was the fear that Alan didn't have any clean underwear. <laughs> Alas, the truth was she was never going to have to worry about his underwear again. <laughs> there is undoubtedly a merging of literary history and gossip here. The literary historian could talk about the emergence of the new northern region, Kernow, because he'd previously been known as the southern region poet, in those Jenny-inspired poems of 1955-6 and the development of Kurnow's poetry that was still to come. The underpants and Betty's soon-to-be-disappointed hopes are gossip, and yet they too are part of the Kurnow story, and with, even with overtones of tragedy. But what the literary historian might prefer to fix on here is Kurnow's role as anthologist and creator of a nationalist myth about New Zealand poetry, and how that myth was to be challenged two decades later by the other bantam shaker, the young acolyte now waving at the dockside. Kurnow was best known for two anthologies of New Zealand poetry. He'd presented each of these with a strong introduction, making a case for the national character of our poets and poetry. These introductions had been the starting point for every significant discussion of our poetry. And although I had um, at first defended Alan when he was attacked because I considered him by far uh, our best and most important poet, I had gradually become weary of the terms of the debate, feeling more and more that nationalism was an unworthy, even dangerous rallying cry and that we needed a different set of terms. Academically, I was by instinct and training a literary historian so what I proposed was that our poetry should be looked at historically as it related to poetry written in the English language in other parts of the world. 
And what this revealed was essentially a loyalty to, or if not a loyalty, perhaps a preference for British models in, the Kerno, in Kerno's generation and a shift to American ones in the generation of Ian Weddy, who's somewhere in the, there in the back. Um, uh, both um, chronologically and in literary preferences, I was myself somewhere in the middle with elements of both, so I could look dispassionately at either. Literary history is a rough guide, not a precise science. All I was proposing was that we should stop banging on about what Kerner had called the New Zealand thing, the regional thing, the real thing, and look instead at where our preferences placed us in the bigger picture of poetry in the English language. This was a lecture I gave in the Wellington Writers' Festival 1979. And I gave it a clever title. Alan had named his firstborn Whiston, after the British-born W.H. Auden, Whiston Hugh Auden. And Ian Weddy had named his firstborn Carlos, after the American William Carlos Williams. Auden and, and uh, Williams were the outstanding examples, the progenitors of the two kinds of poetry so, that I was talking about. So I called the essay from Whiston to Carlos, Modern and Modernism in Recent New Zealand Poetry. It attracted quite a lot of attention, and I think it did, for a time, shift the terms of the discussion of our poetry. And it did this without in any way undermining what I saw as Kerno's deserved preeminence as a poet. That doesn't mean, however, that everyone liked it. Alex Fry and the listener described the lecture as surpassingly elegant, a superb performance, but he noticed most of Stead's auditors felt uneasy. I don't think it's true most did, but some for sure, yes, I noticed this too. Loris Edmonds sat with Honi Tufori, for example, looking distinctly unhappy, and Honi made a grumbling contribution at question time. The point was that I hadn't mentioned either of them. <laughs> and that was the basis for a lot of subsequent complaint. It was as if I'd acquired uh, a status which obliged me to mention everyone to say how deserving they all were. Not to be mentioned was to be slighted. Kevin Island complained in the next issue of Land and Fall that I had omitted, which is an interesting word, omitted to discuss a group of well-published names who happened to be my contemporaries. He, he, of course, was one of them. Somehow things have come to a pretty state, he grumbled, when a noted critic can go to some trouble to lecture at us then publishes rulings on New Zealand poetry today, yet omit to mention poets of mature distinction, like, he didn't say like Kevin Ireland, he said like Vincent O'Sullivan. Expressing firm opinions in the New Zealand literary scene has never been a road to popularity. And for a number of years, I seem to hear varying murmurs, sometimes rising to an insistent buzz, but never really a deafening clamor of discontent and even dislike. I published my fiction abroad partly for safety and reassurance as well as for income, especially necessary after I left the university at the age of 52. This was a time when I expressed some cautious reservation about Kerry Hume's The Bone People, <laughs> a sacred text in that it had won the Booker Prize. And when I reviewed the 1984 Weddy McQueen, Penguin of New Zealand Verse, 
the first to include poems in Maori with translations in footnotes. I quoted some of these translations, this for example. There's some famous butter, Nati is its name. The place where they make it is Ruatoria. Welcome, Prime Minister. You have come to perform the opening ceremony for this food-producing work. I argue that either these were bad translations or they were bad poems. <laughs> Since I knew no Maori, I couldn't say which was true. But neither, I pointed out, could the editors, since neither of them knew Māori either. All this was true, but it was perhaps insensitive and certainly unacceptable. And it led Michael King to suggest in Metro that I was advocating the ethnic cleansing of New Zealand literature. This was a very loaded term at the time when ethnic cleansing was in the news because it was going on in Croatia and Serbia. King at this time was registering strong dissatisfaction with what he called New Zealand literature's old boy network. And I suppose he decided I was now part of it. My response was to suggest that he might be hoping to replace the old boy network with a good boy network of which he would be undisputed leader. Stirring times. <laughs> but Michael and I must later have been reconciled because in 2001, he dedicated his last book of essays to me, but ambiguously. He dedicated it to Carlstead, who, like a hanging, concentrates the mind. <laughs> Kerno and Sargeson were the old men in my literary life, Alan 20 years my senior, Frank 30. So let's switch to a contemporary, Morris Shadbolt, both of us born 1932. I have to say, I learned a lot I'd since forgotten from volume one of Philip Temple's Shadbolt biography. Morris and I and our wives, Kay and Jill, um, were friends together in London in the late 1950s. We ate together, went to plays and drank in pubs and argued about politics. We discussed endlessly the old Kiwi question of when and whether and if at all to return to New Zealand. I read and annotated the typescript of his first collection of short stories, The New Zealanders. I thought it was a bold and challenging collection with a bold and challenging title, but that it contained too much bad or indifferent or overblown writing and that no respectable publisher would take it. When it was taken by the eminently respectable Victor Galantz, and I said all this in a letter to Sargeson, Frank told me I was jealous. I was, of course, or rather I was envious. But I wouldn't have pretended I thought a lot of it was bad writing if I didn't really think so. If I'd admired it, I would have wanted to claim him as a friend and ally and fellow writer. That was always going to be my problem with Morris Shadbolt, how to be his friend if you didn't admire everything he wrote. Soon after I got back to Auckland in 1960, I was invited to give a lecture in the university's first winter lecture series. The theme was the effects of remoteness on New Zealand literature. Uh, and the uh, sort of sub-strata sub, uh, of that were divided up. So Keith Sinclair did the history, Bob Chapman did the politics, Eric McCormick did um, 
culture and so on. And my bit of it was literature. And one of the points I wanted to make was that one of the one effect of our sense of remoteness was a kind of romantic exoticism in describing the scene, an attempt to impress readers, English readers especially, with, the dif with difference. And some of the examples I took came readily to hand because they were from Morris's book, which I'd recently read so attentively and annotated in typescript. I might have got, got away with this more or less unnoticed if the lecture hadn't been published and then won a prize. So of course it came to Morris's attention and must have seemed to him a kind of treachery. He was to have his revenge, however, with his first novel, Among the Cinders, in which the young narrator's older brother, D.K. Flinders, a balding academic who writes pretentious and unintelligible <laughs> literary criticism, was, to quote Philip Temple, a scarcely concealed characterization of C.K. Stead. I was in London again when the novel was published, this was 1965, and the exchange of letters between me and Morris about it, which Temple records, I found really surprising. Temple observes that everyone in, in the literary world knew that Derek was a caricature of C.K. Stead, and he goes on, Stead was amicable enough in a letter from London First, there was the domestic connection between them and Stead responded to Morris's news of twins. But, but he quickly moved on to Among the Cinders. He devoured it in a day and a half, reading impatiently through the bits in which D.K. Flinders did not appear, and then rather irritably through the parts where he did. As the one caricatured, um, Stead was not the best person to judge, but he wondered if the, and then he's quoting me, whether the slight element of spleen, bracket, quite justified in personal terms, no doubt, um, that creep in didn't throw the whole out of balance. And then my letter goes on, the important and difficult thing is to keep going, isn't it? Whatever the bastards, me in your case, you in mine, say. The important thing, important and difficult thing is to keep going, isn't it? Whatever the bastards, me in your case, you and mine say. I find that pretty good and surprising, and Morris matched it in reasonableness. In a letter back, he wrote, D.K. Flinders' solemnity about literature seemed to be mine too. That is, I often felt I was satirising myself. There is something in him of most New Zealand writers. Well, how did we manage to be so civil? But the question was, uh, question remains, will Among the Cinders continue to be a matter of literary interest as time goes by? What I found when I read vol one of, of the Temple biography is that it's very difficult to think about Shadbolt's novel separate from Shadbolt the man. We have so much material about his life, you might say too much, all the wives and girlfriends and the dedications, which didn't seem able to keep up with the rapidity of the turnover, <laughs> and became sometimes a kind of free verse. Uh, the dedication to an era of the dragon, for example, reads, to Sheena for, loving, for living, to Beverly for loving, and Barbara for caring. <laughs> Another favorite of mine was Season of the Jew, which goes with great gratitude to Bridget all the wild way. 
The three Bs in those two dedications, Beverly, Barbara and Bridget, each had a turn of being Mrs Shadbolt. And the other one, Sheena, it seems missed only narrowly. <laughs> the novelist Marilyn Duckworth aspired to the role and has put it all memorably on record in her autobiography, Camping on the Fault Line, but complications with arrangements for looking after the eight children they had between them by then, four each, plus the intervention of one of the bees, I think it was Beverly, um, prevented it. So for Marilyn, marriage and Morris and its lovely alliteration remained a miss, a near miss, but as good as a mile. All this is gossip at one level, is it more than that? The promotional material for this lecture says, more than ever these days, writers, festivals and literary in interviews encourage readers to interest themselves in the lives and thought processes of novelists and poets whose work they read. Recently, for example, the first volume of a biography of Morris Shadbolt has been published. Most of the material came, contained in it could be considered gossip, but at what point does gossip become literary history? This elicited a prickly question from Philip Temple. He first thanked me for a distinctly favourable review of his book in New Zealand Books, but then he went on, I see that you are giving a lecture at the May Writers' Festival, and the blurb for it states that most of the information in my book could be considered gossip. The postulation that years of intensive research can be distilled as gossip intrigues me. I'd be glad of a transcript after you have given the lecture. <laughs> <clears throat> My reply was brief. I said, I think the point might be that it's all gossip until time determines that the writer in question is of sufficient significance for it to be considered literary history. In other words, the thoroughness of your research, always beyond question, Philip, is not the determinant of the importance of the subject. Well, now, um, if I return to Shelley for a moment, when he wrote that poem, Episcidian, subject of the Kerno tutorial, he'd abandoned one schoolgirl wife, Harriet, who had then, pregnant with their second child, drowned herself in the serpentine. He'd run off with another 16-year-old, Mary, who would later be the author of Frankenstein, and also with Mary's half-sister, Claire Claremont, also 16. In Switzerland, they met up with Byron. Claire had an affair with him, with Byron, and a daughter, which Byron took charge of and handed over to a convent, where a few years later she died. Slightly later, Claire seems to have had an affair with Shelley and given birth to a child which Shelley and Mary registered as their own and had adopted out in Italy, so it was never heard of again. And meanwhile, as if all this wasn't enough, Shelley was dreaming of his escape with Amelia Viviani. A ship is floating in the harbour now, a wind is hovering o'er the mountain's brow. Shelley's sexual adventuring without the advantage of the pill or antibiotics makes Shadbolts, with all those conventional weddings, every wife a wedding, um, look relatively sedate. 
But Shelley's are still of interest, and for one reason only, because what he wrote is of interest, and what Byron wrote and what Mary Shelley wrote continue to be of interest. So whether all this detail about Shadbolt is gossip or literary history can't be determined yet, as Martin Amos says, likes to say, judge time will tell. Well, let's move away from the turbulent past to something present and perhaps more reassuring. Recently, Witty Imara had an interview in the Herald's Canvas magazine in which he described as a secondary school boy in 1959 reading a story by Douglas Stewart about a young Pākehā who is invited into a Māori village and stays the night with an old couple in a flea-infested worry. Ihimara says the whole story, Ihimara says, the whole story is very dark and the description of the Māori very demonic, as if these people have invited him in for sinister purposes. This was anathema to me as a Māori because I never thought of our Mariahs full of fleas and people who would take advantage of strangers. I threw the book out of the window and was caned for it. I made a vow that if I ever became a writer, I would write a book about Maori people that would be an antidote to these kinds of stories and it would be placed in front of every school child in New Zealand. I was struck by this for several reasons, so I read the Douglas Stewart story and emailed Witty. Kia ora, Witty. Your interesting piece in Canvas sent me in search of Douglas Stewart's story which I probably hadn't read before. It's interesting, much less sensitive to Maori feelings than any writer now would be, but possibly more honest, do you think? The Maori community he's writing about must have been almost half a century before any you would have experienced, and at a time when Maori were at a low ebb. It feels as if he's reporting it just as he experienced it, and is puzzling out why the old couple appear to want him to stay. The fleas are a mystery. Could Maori have been partly immunised against them by constant exposure? Kay's grandmother remembered walking into an abandoned Maori worry on land her husband had bought in Aumokaroa, wearing a white muslin skirt. And when she looked down, it was black with fleas. The old woman in the story keeps promising to do something about the fleas, but doesn't get around to it. When the narrator leaves, he writes him a very apolo nice, apologetic note, and the tone overall is not disrespectful, more than anything puzzled, which might be an accurate reflection of the intelligent Pākehā view of Māori at that time. Of course, none of us learned much New Zealand history at school and nothing of New Zealand literature. So we were all colonised, but you were doubly colonised. And I can see how a Māori boy would have been offended by the story or perhaps embarrassed. Embarrassment might seem more likely. But I found the bit about your throwing the book out the window and being caned for it and resolving to write a book about Maori people that would be placed in front of every school child in New Zealand, all rather improbable, a case of gilding the lily. Of course, you have done that and you fully deserve every accolade it has brought you but the idea of you, that you foresaw your own success is positively Shadboltian. <laughs> Am I wrong to be such a skeptic? Witty replied at once, Kia ora, Carl. What was really uncanny about your email 
today was that it arrived as I was checking the final publication draft of my next memoir, Native Son, at the point that I refer to the Douglas Stewart story. So I wonder if I could include your email in the memoir <laughs> to give an alternative view of Stewart's story and to allow me to hint at the whole idea of the writer as unreliable narrator. There was more personal interchange then. Thanks for writing to me, Carl. I really appreciate it. Namihi mahana witi. The bit about himself as unreliable narrator seemed to confirm my suspicion about gilding the lily. I replied, I did reply, I wonder whether I've got lost in it. That's funny. I suggest there. Um, I replied, Kiora witi, and thanks for your prompt reply. You're more than welcome to use my email. Then there was much more in this exchange about the memo I was writing and about Witty having been a student in Kernos and Pearson's and Stead's classes at Auckland University. And then I concluded, can I both admired um, your Maori boy so much and we're looking forward eagerly to the sequel, Namihi Kao. What I want to suggest about this exchange is that for me, at the age of 86, and looking back over quite a long writing life, it does have the feel of a step forward, something that I don't think could have happened half a century ago, because at that time there was no Maori writer with the ease, confidence and sophistication Ihimaira displays, and I suppose equally at that time, I would not have been so at ease exchanging ideas with a Maori writer in potentially sensitive areas. Literary history is sometimes seen as the measure of history on the larger scale, political history, social history. Ezra Pound called writers the voltometers and steam gauges of their time. Ihimaira, it seems to me, is the Maori version of Kurnow's child born in a marvelous year who will learn the trick of standing upright here. I can't make claims for myself, but let's hope we're both standing upright here. If we are, it's a small matter, but more than gossip, it's some kind of historical marker. That's all. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.